Hello, and welcome to Nostalgia Arcana. I'm your host, Doug Leaf. Each episode of this podcast, we'll look back on the movies, TV, games, people, and phenomena that we still love talking about all these years later, and ask ourselves why these bits of pop culture still enchant us today. This week, we'll be revisiting... my mind? Do you know what it is you do to me? You made me watch Superman again, and that was a treat! So, uh, I'm really excited to talk about Superman, colon, the movie. This is the quintessential superhero movie. It's the er superhero movie, really, that every superhero movie afterwards owes a debt to. Uh, And it's just an easy, breezy pleasure to watch. So, uh, this is going to be a fun discussion, and to to help me along... uh, we have a returning guest. You know him from our Karate Kid episode. He is a, a filmmaker in his own right. Um, he uh, makes uh, storm chasing stuff in addition to all his Karate Kid content, and uh, just a, an all around great guy. And I'm and uh, I'm really excited to have him back. Ken Cole, everybody. Well, thank you, Doug. It's very nice to be back. It's it's an honor, and I am so looking forward to our discussion today. Yeah. I, so this was your pick, and uh, so tell me why. You know. Back, I have to say, back when I was a kid growing up, uh, it's not like today. You kind of alluded to the fact that really all superhero movies owe a debt to this movie. And uh, when I was growing up, you know, when I was young, it was even before the Tim Burton's Batman. This was kind of it. You know, if you wanted to see grand big screen superheroes, uh, you really had this movie and, and this movie series. You had Christopher Reeve playing Superman. And it was wonderful and it was great. Uh, at the time, the special effects were were fantastic and it was a shining example of how things on the comic book page could make it into real life and into movie screens and uh, something that just inspires your imagination. So I know it did for me and so many other kids growing up, but um, it's turned into a movie that I've just revisited so often uh, since I've since I've been young and it holds up. It's it's just absolutely wonderful for so many different reasons. Yeah, I have a lot of uh, fond memories wrapped up in this one, and like and, and just like you, I'm old enough that you know uh, Tim Burton's Batman would not come along until I was uh, was it nine, I think when that when that came mm-hmm. out, which and it was a game changer, and uh, we're still planning on doing an episode on on that movie and how wonderful it is. But you're right, like Superman kind of cornered the market. Because there was nothing else. The only superhero content you could get was on the small screen. You had, you know, reruns of Adam West's Batman and Linda Carter's Wonder Woman and like the Incredible Hulk and, you know, a handful of pretty crummy animated things. But this was it for superhero content. But 
it's still far and away one of the best superhero movies ever made. And there's a reason it's the template for everything that came after it. Um, as far as like being a kid and, and uh, you know, in the eighties and, and loving Superman, do you have any like specific memories tied to this? Well, you know, for me, I am not, I, for whatever reason, I never got heavy into comic books themselves. So I am definitely not approaching this as an expert of uh, Superman comics. You know, I've read a few over the years, but um, it was really these movies uh, that, uh, and toys, you know, playing with the toys, but it was really these movies that I watched over and over again, uh, including this one. And, you know, I just wanted to be able to fly. This this movie, for a young kid, it just made me want to fly, uh, just that dream of flying. And so I remember, uh, you know, running outside and trying to run and see if I could run and jump high enough where I could fly and um, just really being inspired by by this movie. That, th- those are probably some special memories for me. You know, the tagline for the movie is, of course, you'll believe a man can fly. And yes. that is the perfect tagline for this movie because you know you mentioned yeah the special effects are good for 1978 and yes you can sort of see the seams you know watching it in 4k now but i i still believe a man can fly when i watch it because of christopher reeve elevating this this character and this performance so much it's just like i i still totally buy that he's flying and I'll, you'll never tell me that Christopher Lee Reeve couldn't fly in real life because it, it just feels like he could. And yes. I, I remember having a cape when I was a kid and definitely running around with it on all the time, uh, pretending I could fly. Um, I have two other kind of personal memories wrapped up in, in Superman. One is, uh, you know, one of my best friends is uh, a big enthusiast of Superman and, and this film series in particular, but also the comics. Like you, I also never really read the comics. I read the Superman, the Death of Superman run because mm-hmm. that was a big event. Other than that, nothing. But because he was such a big fan and he was my best man at my wedding, for a gift, I got him an autographed headshot of Christopher Reeve. Uh, oh my gosh. So, so that was cool. And then wow. the other memory I have is on the negative side, which is as far as horror movies go, they don't really scare me. Except for body horror. Body horror will definitely, you know, that hits a nerve. And mm-hmm. it goes right back to the end of Superman 3, which, like, I still oh, yes. watch to this day. Because that's some fucked up shit. And, like, I just remember seeing that. We were, like, on a, a trip up to the mountains. We were in somebody's cabin and we rented a movie. There's a bunch of us there. And like, it was like, oh, yeah, we'll watch Superman. That's fun. And, like, scarred for life from the end of that movie. <laughs> that That was surprisingly scary. And I think... So many people actually agree with that. I've I've read so much about people being traumatized by that one scene you're talking about. So yes, I I totally agree. Yeah, and we're not talking about that today. We could we can touch on other films in the franchise, but really we're here to talk about the first one. Although it is a little hard to separate Superman from Superman Two because of its well known production issues. I'll, yes, if you want to fill in on some of that, I know you know the story. Oh, yes. Well, it's so fascinating because I loved watching these movies growing up. And then as we got into the Internet age and I started looking up the movie on the Internet, um, I started to learn about all these stories that I didn't know about, the behind the scenes, the making of Superman, the movie. Um, And I always wondered growing up how Superman 2 was such a great sequel. Like it felt like they were so close to each other and it was because they were intended to both shoot together. And that's what they did. 
uh, for a while. They hired uh, Richard Donner. Uh, they hired Mario Puzo to come come up with a story. Uh, there were a number of different writers, but Tom Mankiewicz, who was Richard Donner's pick to write the movie, he kind of rewrote everything, and it was a two-movie, it's a two-part epic. And so they were going to shoot both, and they did at least all of Superman 1 and maybe 60 to 70% of Superman 2 was all shot by Richard Donner. But he had some problems with his with the producers and the financiers of these movies and they basically you know we can get into that drama later but they fired him and so they the producers hired a new director Richard Lester uh, to come in and finish Superman 2 and so some of that footage is Richard Donner's in the theatrical cut and and, uh, the majority is uh, Richard Lester's but um, that's why it's such a, a great sequel even the theatrical version, I think, is because they were conceived together, they were shot together. Uh, it, there was supposed to be two, a two-parter, an epic two-parter. So, yes. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of cohesion between the two. And you can feel that, like, I mean, right from the beginning, it, at the beginning of the movie, we have this trial of who will be the villains for the second movie. And it's obvious they're investing all of this time into this scene, which is like, oh, they they never appear again. They 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 are sentenced to the Phantom Zone and they're gone from the movie. Uh, yep. And you realize, yeah, it's because they're meant to come back in part two. You have heard the evidence. The decision of the council will now be heard. Guilty. 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 The vote must be unanimous, Dorel. It has therefore now become your decision. You alone will condemn us if you wish, and you alone will be held responsible by me. Join us. You have been known to disagree with the Council before. Yours could become an important voice in the new order, second only to my own. I offer you a chance for greatness, Jorel. Take it. Join us. You will bow down before me, Jorel. I swear it. No matter that it takes an eternity, you will bow down before me. Both you and then one day, your heirs. And, uh, but I will say, watching this movie... The pacing of this movie is a little interesting because you don't actually see Superman in the costume as like, or even Christopher Reeve himself until something like 47 minutes into the movie. You get a brief shot of him in his Superman outfit for the first time. And so the movie is spending a lot of time on this origin, way more so than you would expect in a modern superhero movie. In fact, I decided to watch a little bit of Man of Steel in preparation for this just to sort of see like, hey, how does a different you know, team tackle basically the same plot. And yeah, they're, they're in and out of Krypton in you know, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, they go through that very quickly, but I will say watching it this time, I finally kind of felt like I understood the investment in that first chunk of the movie. Why do they spend so long on this? And even independently of the fact that some of it's coming back for, for Superman two. I think thematically there's a lot of resonance between what happens on Krypton and in his uh, teenage years 
and then the, the the rest of the film that's you know present day superman yeah and what you're bringing up right now i've heard a lot of people say is kind of a criticism of the movie and that it's like a movie at war with itself because you have these very three distinct parts to the movie you have this science fiction section on krypton you have this sort of bucolic americana section where you know he's a teenager in school and john the kent's jonathan kent um passing away and then you have like the comic book like once we get christopher reeve as superman in in metropolis it becomes a comic book and they have very different tones to them and some people uh say that that's kind of a a detriment to superman the movie i don't See, I don't know because to me, I love epics and the idea that it goes through these uh, separate acts um, that each have their own tone, to me, it kind of builds up the character of Superman that uh, like he's he's spanning across all these different tones, science fiction, uh, the essence of American life and then, uh, you know, action comic book um, type things. I think it helps, um, but. Yeah, I, I, under, I understand where people are coming from. From that. How do you feel about that? No, I'm in your camp. Um, I, I think I used to be in the other camp of going like, gee, it takes us a long time to get to Superman and Lois and Lex Luthor right. and, you know, the stuff we ostensibly care about. And, you know, that the, the origin of Superman, in some sense, you want to yada yada that because, yeah, yeah, we all know what happened, right? We know the story. He's from Krypton. Krypton is destroyed. He comes here. Why can't we just zoom past that? The same way that like Batman movies tend to, you know, not linger too long on the death of Thomas and Martha Wayne. Right. We we get it. Um, mm-hmm. But I think in this film, they're doing stuff thematically with that crypt, especially with the Krypton section of the movie, that there's a lot of payoff for that investment that makes it worthwhile. Right. You get for one thing, you get a lot about Jor-El, his father being a person who cares about justice, right? But also someone who, is, you know, the, you watch this person, he's basically, he's, he can only save one person, right? And this movie is a lot about, you know, Superman's one limitation, which is that he he can't be everywhere at once. That's his one weakness, really. Yes, there's kryptonite, but really his weakness is he can only save so many people. And watching Jarrell say, well, I, you know, I can only save my son and I could br- break the rules of the council and start warning everybody about the impending doom of Krypton. Although it, I guess it's like 20 minutes away. So what could he really do? <laughs> right. But, you know, but he, you know, he could save himself and his wife. He doesn't. You're right. He could have built a ship for all three of them, uh, but he doesn't. And it's like, I, you know, he won't break the rules to save you know, to, he'll, he'll only save his son, right? That kind of mirrors the end of the movie to jump way ahead, which is that Superman is going to, you know, break the one rule his father sets out for him in order to save Lois. Right. Right. So yes. that's the kind of thing where I think there is this investment. And also think about how the movie opens before we even get to Krypton. We get this oddball little thing of like, they're reading the first action comics, mm-hmm. you know, the actual like comic of the original Superman. Number one, and talk and the first thing they talk about is like the truth and the power of the daily planet that's where they set the beginning of their movie in the decade of the 1930s even the great city of metropolis 
was not spared the ravages of the worldwide depression. In the times of fear and confusion, the job of informing the public was the responsibility of the Daily Planet, a great metropolitan newspaper whose reputation for clarity and truth had become a symbol of hope for the city of Metropolis. And so much of the movie is actually about truth, right? Not just truth, justice in the American way, but like the value of journalism and truth. And you marry that up with Krypton, right? Where Jor-El is forbidden from spreading the truth about what's happening mm. in Krypton. And his son grows up to become a journalist. And so much of this is about like the, the journalism angle. And especially for the 70s, right? Coming out of Watergate, like, yeah. you know, ve- the veneration of, of journalism. I love that. Yeah, well, 100%. And it's really heartening to me, I think, to see that now. We've had such a phase of movies that have been, I don't know, cynical, um, downbeat, very somber, uh, gritty. And I always like returning to this movie because I wish we had a little more of that sensibility. And some might call it cornball. But I think we need that. We need to be reminded of the things we should be striving for, the virtues, you know, um, the idea that journalism, you know, we have such a, such a skeptical view of journalism and media, you know, at least that idea is out there. Here we have an idea that, yes, journalism is good. Pursuit of the truth is a good thing. And um, those original ideas of America, you know, they're worth they're worth fighting for. And uh, that's that's why I love the character of Superman. He doesn't mind coming off a bit corny. Um because he believes in it. Well, they they really just ride that line perfectly between having him be cornball and campy and being mm-hmm. sincere. And they really just hit that bullseye of being sincere. The only other time, and, and, and you're right, there's that sense, I think, of like, you know, in our modern era, could we have a hero like that? You know, do we want a hero that's like kind of that tone? And the proof is, absolutely, go watch mm-hmm. Captain America. Because... Right. Chris Evans is Captain America and Christopher Reeves Superman are absolutely of a piece. Like it's the same tone of like, you know, golly gee whiz America, but also like that's noble, right? There, there is a nobility to that that is incredibly attractive in those two characters. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. A hundred percent. And I, I like, especially in this movie, you do bring up the point that they're, they're kind of aware of that and they're walking that line and, uh, you know, that classic scene where Superman saves Lois from falling down the building and he grabs a helicopter and then they land on the roof and then he puts her down and then he says, now, I, I hope this hasn't put you off of flying. And then he takes a second and he goes back. Statistically speaking, it is the safest way to fly. Gentlemen, this man needs help. Well, I certainly hope this little incident hasn't put you off flying, miss. Statistically speaking, of course, it's still the safest way to travel. Right. Wait! Who are you? A friend. Bye! And she's like, Oh yeah, that's fine. And he walks away with a smile on his face. And it's like, it's such a, it's a corny line, but he's almost like just amused. Like he gets it. It's like, there's a wink, there's a wink to the audience. And, 
Um, that's what I love about this movie is it, it walks that line. It knows Superman's roots and Superman sometimes is a little self-aware that what he's saying is a little, is a little corny, but, uh, it's that line that Christopher Reeve walks. Oh my goodness. What a performance. You know, I just watched it again in preparation for our discussion and Christopher Reeve, I, I am just astounded at how good he is in that role as Superman and he could be the best actor to play a superhero. And, and certainly there was no template for this. And he was a, an unknown actor and he walked in and he just owned this role. Really, really incredible. It's a very special performance, you know, in the history of movies, because what you're asking him to do, you're right. It's a, again, there's no template. He is a Julie hard trained actor. So, I mean, he's got the, he's got the chops, he had to work to get the physique. You know, he was a string bean before he started training for this. But I mean, once he's, I mean, he's, he isn't like Chris Hemsworth, Thor ripped, but he's, you know, this broad shouldered, tall guy. And like, you just couldn't picture a better actor to play Superman. And I, I actually like both Brandon Routh and uh, Henry Cavill in the role. They were, I don't think they're the scripts or the movies they were in gave them the chance to do what they're capable of. They're both wonderful actors, but this performance is kind of on another level because of what you like this this like we said this tightrope act that he has to walk between being charming and formidable, but also grounded and believable. Like it's 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 a miracle that it works as well as it does. Oh yes, and what I think it's fascinating and really unique about his performance is that duality of Clark Kent and Superman. The way Christopher Reeve plays Clark Kent, you know, he's kind of he's like this very awkward kind of hokey goofball, um, just physically transforming himself into someone that even though he looks maybe his face looks like Superman, he's acting so differently that he's disguising himself that way. And we, you know, in those other performances you mentioned, we really don't see that. That change, and I, I think there's that great moment when he considers telling Lois who he is in the first movie, and he straightens up and he takes off his glasses, and all of a sudden it's Superman, and then he changes his mind, and he hunches back over and he puts on his glasses, and it's like you're seeing two different characters from the same actor, just beautiful, beautifully done, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, hi. Can I come in? Oh yeah. Lois. For goodness sake, didn't you hear me knocking? Uh-huh. Um, Lois, we uh, did, did have a date tonight, uh, remember? Oh. Lois? Huh? You haven't been, um, uh, hmm? Oh, no, no. Well, I should certainly hope not. Well, let's uh, push off, shall we? I better get a coat. Uh, it might be kind okay. of cold. No, I mean, uh, I need a person. I have to fix my hair and some blush on. Lois, there's something I have to tell you. I'm really... Um, I mean, I, I was, uh, at first, really nervous about tonight. Uh, but then I decided, well, darn it, I was going to show you the time of your life. It's Clark, nice. I mean, 
it is a sort of just inherent goofy weakness in the original material that you know mm-hmm. how does Lois never you know this perceptive journalist not notice this guy you know hey wait a minute if he took off his glasses mm-hmm. he looked like superman yes. so they have to work within those constraints but within those constraints my god yeah that scene you're talking about where it's like he transforms his whole body and his voice and it's like as much as you can do to differentiate these two characters he does it masterfully and and that scene is great that they give you the chance him the chance to literally kind of just like move the slider from superman to clark kent and back again Um, right it's it's really just masterful acting like physical acting too just you know on every level yes and also a shout out to margot kidder who plays lois lane because the way she approached the character uh she had said that she throughout her life she had seen so many women who do this thing where uh, if there's a man that's potentially a love interest or someone that they're interested in, they behave one way, you know, they, you know, maybe awestruck, but those same women that she observed uh, can easily be dismissive of someone that they don't evaluate as like relationship material or someone to pay attention to. And she brought that to Lois where she's very dismissive of Clark Kent. Like, um, the first impression of Clark, you know, he's he's kind of bumbling, you know, she's, you know, she's friends with him, but she's not really, you know, uh, looking at him as like a love interest or or someone. It's it's someone who's safe. And I think that helps the what you're talking about, the constraints, because she's kind of blinded by her bias uh, towards Clark Kent as and being dismissive towards him versus when she has the attention of Superman that's totally different in her brain. And you can kind of see her brain go in two different ways. And I think that also enhances, you know, those constraints. It's a great way to deal with those constraints, I think. Yeah, she, there's also, yeah, there's a duality to her performance as well. And, but she she never really loses her spunkiness though. And like, she is the progenitor of a long line of, you know, kind of spunky female reporter types in comic book movies. Uh, whether that's literally reporters like you know Kim Basinger as Vicky Vale in Batman, um, the April O'Neil in the Ninja Turtles movie, you've got uh, characters like um, a lot of Marvel characters that are like you know like say Natalie Portman in the Thor movies, right? There's, you know again this right. like spunky female presence uh, that all goes back to this performance by Margot Kidder because even when she's kind of awestruck by Superman. Uh, she never quite loses her you know, her identity and that, you know, she, she never gives herself over to that entirely, even in the flying sequence. You know, she's still kind of she's still kind of her. And especially given the fact that he drops her in that scene. Right. Like what what the like the ultimate nerve of, of Superman <laughs> to do that to her. It's like it's pretty fucked up in, in a way. There's a very funny <laughs> YouTube video. Uh, you can find it where someone edited that where, you know, he's the, the, the scene's going along and he drops her and she goes, ah. And then they just cut to him flying at the very end of the movie. And that's it. That's it. I killed Lois. The end of the movie. Um, but <laughs> she's such the linchpin of the, of the story. And I really like that. They kind of hold back on her feelings for Superman until Superman two, because mm-hmm. we get a lot, obviously Superman uh, is totally head over heels for her. We don't get a lot of her reciprocating that in this movie. They, they really save that. And it, it adds a lot, I think, to that end of the movie because you know it, it means a lot to him to save her. She doesn't at the end. She obviously doesn't even realize it happened. Right. 
And, and it's and it makes sense, right? Because she's meeting this person. The world is meeting this person for the first time, Superman. Uh, and she's absolutely awestruck. But, you know, it takes time for her to sort of absorb that. And yeah, it's only in the second movie where that starts to become a possibility. And um, yeah, I just think it it was a great decision, I think, to make that story into two movies. Yeah, it it well, you kind of save some of those bullets for for later. Uh, yes. We haven't talked about the villains yet, uh, <laughs> and there's a few. Uh, I mean, yes, you have Lex Luthor, who is the quintessential Superman villain, and I think the perfect foil for him because you know he is not super powered; he is you know just an ordinary uh, guy. And this particular iteration of Lex Luthor is interesting because he's not even kind of like the tycoon as he's often played right here. He's just like, he doesn't have much of a team. He's got bumbling Otis, you know, Ned Beatty and uh, Miss Tessmacher. And that's it. That's his whole criminal organization. And their Mm -hmm. plan is sort of oddly modest in a way, you know, they're not trying to destroy the entire world. They just want to make a big crack in California for some real estate development. (laughs) Right. Last it's official. Thanks to the generous help of the United States government, we are about to be involved in the greatest real estate swindle of all time. Lex, what is this obsession with real estate? All the time, land, land, land. Miss Desbacher, when I was six years old, my father said to me, Get out. <laughs> Before that, he said, Son, stocks may rise and fall. Utilities and transportation systems may collapse. People are no damn good. But they will always need land, and they'll pay through the nose to get it. Remember, my father said, land. Right. It's a pity that uh, he didn't see from such humble beginnings how I've created this empire. An empire? This? Miss Tessmacher, how many girls do you know who have a Park Avenue address like this one? Park Avenue address? 200 feet below? Do you realize what people are shelling out up there for a few miserable rooms off a common elevator? What, what more, more could anyone ask? Yeah, it's oh, it's a great team. And I, I know I've heard from fans, Superman fans, fans of the comics that, you know, Ned Beatty's character, Otis, is kind of, you know, not not a fan favorite. But for, for movie fans like myself, I mean, just such an amazing uh, combination, uh, amazing trio, Lex Luthor, uh, Otis, and Miss Tessmacher. Ned Beatty is a genius. And I, I think, if we're talking about the villains, what this movie did well, and I know Christopher Nolan did this when he went into Batman Begins, the lesson he took from it, or one of the big ones, was casting great actors. And that's what you have. You have, even though Christopher Reeve is a great actor, he was unknown at the time, um, but they surrounded him with great actors. Gene Hackman, amazing. To, to have him on board. Uh, and Valerie, Valerie Perrine's a great actor. She, she nails it with uh, Miss Tessmacher. And you're right. It's like a very uh, comic, funny uh, performance by Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor. And it, and it it's, it's almost like a, a, clown, a lot of clowning by Otis, uh, a lot of gags, very entertaining to watch. And, but then at those key moments, you can see the you see the ruthlessness of Lex Luthor when his plan is revealed that he's actually going to cause part of the state of California to fall into the ocean so he can get a great land deal. Um, you see that ruthless, ruthlessness come out and 
it doesn't come out for very long. He's not a sneering villain, but it is, it's such a shift that it's like, oh man, we got to take this guy seriously. You know, it's, it's that interesting gravity that Gene Hackman has of playing comedy, but also having this undercurrent of like deadly seriousness to it. Uh, and so just, I love the performance and it's in contrast, you could say to Terrence Stamp. We see him briefly, as you mentioned at the beginning of the movie. Um, and he plays almost like this theatrical classical villain. And um, of course we get that back in Superman too, but, uh, and then we get to see those, those characters kind of meet again in Superman too. But um, yeah, just, just great villains uh, in, in this movie. Yeah. What, what do you think? Yeah, I I, uh, I mean, to me, Gene Hackman is in a way, I mean, he's my Lex Luthor because he's the one right. I grew up with, even though I, I actually I really like uh, Clancy Brown in the uh, animated yeah. series, which is he's great. That's more the tycoon Luthor who has you know much more resources. He, you know, he has this more public persona that's seemingly legitimate um, and not like this one who's literally living 200 feet below Fifth Avenue and, you know, Phantom of the Opera style. But you're right about that. You know, he he seems very kind of charming and funny. But the menace comes in when you realize he has absolutely no regard for human life at all. Mm -hmm. And it's extremely cavalier. And you look at the ecological disaster he's causing. And it's not terribly dissimilar from the Kryptonian disaster at the beginning of the movie, which, again, like you know, that investment is paying off and like, you know, yeah, we're going to destroy this, not the entire planet, but a good chunk of land and, and everybody with it. And Superman, just like you know, his father is, has an opportunity to stop that from happening. Only this time, of course, because he's on earth, he has the, the superpowers to do something about it. Mm -hmm. But even again, you know, he can't do everything because once again, the, he can't, there's two missiles. He can't get to them both in time. And I love that, that that that's all part of Gene Hackman's plan that he puts together so quickly. Like he's, you know, he sees one headline about Superman and he reads Lois's article and he knows everything he needs to know to instigate this plan. They're getting to Otis and Tessmacher. So yeah, Ned Beatty is a genius and you don't need me to tell you this. Go watch his monologue from Network. Network one of yep. the finest pieces of acting in cinema history one of the most intimidating things I've ever seen anybody do on screen. It's absolutely wild. And so to see him, and this is after network, mm -hmm. um, you know, so now he's playing a very, you know, low status character, but he's still nonetheless entrusted with like reprogramming these missiles. Like he's not totally inept. Right. Um, so they, they kind of get enough mileage out of him as a, as a henchman. Um, Tessmacher is interesting. I don't know what she, she doesn't add as much to the criminal enterprise. She's mostly probably just there to gratify Luther, but I love her turn. You know, she, you know, she can't kill Superman. He's too charming. He's yep. too nice. She, and she says, you know, she, she kisses him while he's got the crypt, kryptonite, you know, chained to his neck. And she says, why did you do, you know, he kisses, she kisses him and he says, why did you do that? You know, why didn't you take the thing off? And he says, well, I, I didn't think you'd let me. Why did, why did you kiss me first? If I didn't think you'd let me later. Thank you, Mr. Asmucker. Why is it I can't get it on with the good guys? Stand aside now. I wouldn't stay here either. 
right. it's very sweet and kind of innocent and charming. Right. And and I loved that moment in particular. I loved you talk about uh, Lex Luthor's just disregard for human life. Uh, you know, he he kind of made his own bed when he targeted Hackensack, New Jersey, you know, which is Miss Tech Smucker's mother's home. So that's the only reason that Superman got out of it. And it kind of shows you he's a smart man, but I guess he's so clueless about who, where Miss Tessmucker's mother even lives. He doesn't care. And that's what ends up foiling him. It's kind of, kind of a nice touch. I think Yeah, he's immensely arrogant. Um, I mean, that is part of his, his whole steez as a villain is that, that mm-hmm. arrogance. Um, and who could imagine, uh, uh, an evil real estate developer from New York with, with no regard for human life in a, you know, becoming president in the comics. Anyway, um, <laughs> but I digress. Uh, although I've heard that actually that, that this performance was actually partly based on Donald Trump, even in the seventies, we knew he was a shitbag. Wow. That's, yeah. that is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. You know, and the other thing you talk about this interpretation of Lex Luthor and um, from my understanding, Gene Hackman did not want to sign on to this movie to play Lex Luthor with a bald cap. He did not want to wear the bald cap. And so they had to figure out a way to not have him wear a bald cap. And so they did that with like the wigs, they show the wigs. And so he's, his hair changes and, um, and then he does wear a bald cap briefly at the end of the first movie and the beginning of the second movie. But, um, I'm wondering if that sort of informed this change in the character uh, where they make him a bit more offbeat, underground, kind of quirky with the wigs, that that type of thing, um, to maybe give him his own identity and let Gene Hackman play a character that makes sense for him as opposed to adhering to the comics. Well, I love the the idea that he wears all these wigs. Uh, yeah. I think it adds it's additive because it goes to his vanity. And just, you know, again, like pushes that arrogance part of the character, you know, really puts that forward. Uh, and it's such a really great comic moment where when the wig comes off at the end of the movie, there's, it's a right. great payoff for that because we're all thinking, isn't this character bald? And so when they finally do it, um, it's so great. And they've got Otis there trying to like, you know, be his hype man there as he's, you know, dragged into prison <laughs> by Superman. And it's interesting. They don't even give you like a confrontation scene you know like superman solves the crisis that lex Luthor has created and we don't see him like apprehend Luthor. we just cut to the prison and superman's mm-hmm. dropping him off because i mean he's a god like what's what's lex Luthor going to do once superman really gets his hands on him you know right um it, it's great yeah i know there there's i've heard this word joy a lot lately especially in the conversations about superhero movies and this movie has joy. I think even in Gene Hackman's performances like Sleuther, it's a joyous performance, uh, even though he's a villain. And of course, Christopher Reeve, Margot Kidder, uh, Ned Beatty, everyone else, such a joyful performance. And um, it just contributes to this movie having heart. And I think that's why I keep coming back to it again and again, because it has heart. Um, You believe in these people. And you get a sense that the entire production knew that they were making something special. And I don't know, it just kind of exudes joy. It puts me in a good mood. Yeah, no, you're right. Again, it has this very light touch to it that is, again, it's this masterful uh, balancing of tones that it never 
that that lightness never takes it all the way into Adam West campiness where, you know, that you can feel that almost like waiting off screen of like, it'd be so easy for them to do that. Like, you know, you, you get a couple of really lame jokes out of Jimmy Olsen or something. And then pfft, like, we're, we're in that realm. Right. Um, and, but it never does. Like Christopher Reeve grounds this so much because of, for all of his, like the way he charmingly kind of tosses off lines, it's interesting that we kind of get a, you get a good sense of who this character is because we don't, we, I mean, obviously he's not the Clark Kent that we see in the glasses. We do get the younger Clark Kent, which is voiced by Christopher Reeve, um, dubbing over the, I forget the other actor's name, but but, um, Jeff East. Thank you, Jeff East. Um, But that younger, those scenes of him in Smallville are important because you see how kind of low status he is and he's kind of, you know, kind of bucking against that. Like, you know, I can, I can kick this football into space if I want. I can, you know, I can do all of these amazing things and I have to keep it a secret. And so kind of that like joy of kind of letting that out of like, yeah, I'm just going to fly up the side of a building and catch a burglar, you know, very cavalierly and just bring him back down and drop him off at a police officer's feet. You see the like that kind of twinkle in his eye that he's like, I'm getting to do it. Right. I'm, you know, I have to <laughs> right. keep my identity a secret, but I'm at least getting to sh- use all these powers I have. Uh, and then we, we should talk a bit about Marlon Brando. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, first of all, again, talk about bringing in a heavy hitter of an actor. They don't get much heavier hitting than than Marlon Brando. And he brings such a, you know, kind of this noble gravitas. He reminds me a little bit of like, say, like Mufasa from The Lion King. Like you kind of need and he kind of does the same shtick of, like you know, appearing in the clouds. But um you you need that you need you need like both of superman's superman's fathers to sort of be these competing voices of you know advice for him and he yeah i mean you i'll let you talk about you know what you, your thoughts on marlon brando yeah i mean this was something i think by the producers richard donner had a lot of problems with these producers but i think the one thing they really did was they spent money at least up front on these really big names and Marlon Brando was the biggest you know i think they were very transfixed by the success of the godfather movies you know they hired mario puzo to come up with the story um they wanted brando such a great actor who's also in the godfather um to give them that dramatic weight that this is a serious adult cinematic experience and um, that that name is something that they could sell to everyone. And, you know, they did not have an easy time getting him. Uh, he charged a lot of money for his little role. He wanted $5 million. And I in think he's in the $78 in $1978. What's that got to be like somewhere between 10 and 15 million today, probably at least at least. And uh, so they had to convince him. Uh, to be part of this and they had to come up with the money. And even then, you know, he had gotten to the point where he refused to memorize lines. So um, they needed to write all his lines on cue cards and constantly have cue cards off screen so he could read his lines as he was performing. And, you know, it's something that Christopher Reeve actually years later was was disappointed in Marlon Brando for, for not giving it his all or his full effort 
in the way that Christopher Reeve would like to commit to to a character. And uh, so I thought that was interesting. But regardless, it's Marlon Brando. I mean, he's just such a such a towering talent uh, and great actor that he just lent that gravitas. And you're right. His tone was perfect uh, as Jarrell, uh, everything he needed to be. Um, we have him at the beginning. We have him really giving him a lot of exposition, giving Kal-El a lot of exposition about who he is. And then, of course, he's that voice of moral certitude at the end that, you know, you shall not interfere with human history. And, you know, I can't think of really a better actor that could do that. You will travel far, my little Kal-El. But we will never leave you even in the face of our death. The richness of our lives shall be yours. All that I have, all that I've learned, everything I feel, all this and more, I... I bequeath you, my son. You will carry me inside you all the days of your life. You will make my strength your own. See my life through your eyes. As your life will be seen through mine. The son becomes the father, and the father the, the son. This is all I all I can send you. Yeah, I mean, you talked about him, you know, he's he's only, you know, giving it 15% of a performance. Do you think that's what 15% of a performance looks like from this guy? Holy crap. I mean, and if you want to see 100%, go watch his filmography. I mean, you know, go watch On the Waterfront. Go watch Godfather. Go watch all these other things he did, you know, Streetcar. Um, he's, he's incredible. And here, it's so interesting because he does so much by doing relatively little like his he never gets you know he's faced with the impending doom of his planet and he doesn't you know the needle doesn't move above a three like he still he kind of faces everything very calmly and stoically he just knows what he has to do and does it and um but it's like you realize how just how essential he is in that when they made superman returns they said we're going to use brando footage for we're not going to ha- cast a new Jarrell for the stuff we're going to use. We'll just use un- unused Marlon Brando stuff because nobody could do that better, right? Right, right. Yeah, indeed. And it's probably a whole different discussion, but as you know, Brando was supposed to be in Superman 2. And he shot those scenes as Jarrell in Superman 2, but the producers did not want to pay him. I think it was another $5 million uh, to put those scenes in Superman 2. So they cut him out and they put in Susanna York uh, as Superman's mom in his place. And so it was only when we finally got the Superman 2 Richard Donner cut that we finally got to see those scenes uh, with Jarrell. But that's an interesting discussion, maybe maybe for another time. Yeah, I will. I, I've not actually watched the Donner cut of Superman 2. I'm, I'm curious. What do you think it's superior to the theatrical release? Or No. I don't. Okay. Uh, I think I think 
it's amazing that it happened. And I waited so many years once I learned that there there was footage there to see it. And it's wonderful to see that footage, but it's it's not a finished movie. And so it gives you an idea of what it might have been, but it's very clear that uh, for instance, the ending is the same as Superman one, because that was originally the ending to Superman one was originally the ending to Superman two, but they just decided to heighten the ending of Superman one by bringing that into the first movie. And they were going to figure something else out when, when they went back to finish shooting Superman two, but, um, they never got to do that. At least the Richard Donner version, they never got to do that. So it's the same ending. Um, you know, it's it's they're using re, uh, musical cues from the first movie, the John Williams cues. They don't always line up. You know, some of the scenes were rough. There's a great scene where Lois discovers who Superman is. She has a suspicion. She fires a gun at him. It's a it's a but it, the footage is from a test, like an audition test screening or, or and it's not like finished movie quality. So the quality is a bit uneven. Um, I would say that, yeah, I know there, it has its fans, but Superman to the theatrical version is, is the finished film. It's a finished film, um, that I think is very enjoyable. And then if you love it, I think it's worth checking out the Richard Donner cut. It's a curiosity basically. Yes. Yes. Yeah. For, for us, for fans, it's wonderful to have and wonderful to see it, but I don't think you would take that as your main Superman too. Do you have a favorite moment? From Superman one what comes to mind is is the fl- the first flight with Lois uh, with John Williams music can you read my mind that's that's the theme of that um, I love that sequence that's great can you read my mind do you know what it is that you do to me I don't know who you are. Just a friend from another star. Here I am, like a kid out of school, holding hands with a god. I'm a fool. There are so many great moments. Of course, there's the the ending moment when Lois Lane dies and Superman is in grief and he just shoots right up into space and he starts flying, flying super fast. Um, that's pretty epic. I, I always really was taken by that and still am just that pure raw emotion in Christopher Reeve. Save 
you know, and that's an interesting question too, because a lot of people, you know, they see how he's flying around the earth and it looks like he's turning the world backwards. But then, you know, other people watching it will say, well, no, what he's doing is he's flying faster than light. Like he's basically going back in time. So it looks like the earth is turning backwards because he's going backwards in time. And uh, I, I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but I don't know what, what, what do you think? And yeah, what's your favorite moment? Uh, so to answer the first question, yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I think he's he's traveling back in time. If he was literally just, first of all, he was just rotating the earth backwards. <laughs> that wouldn't reverse time. That would just cause irreparable harm to everyone living right. here, which right. kind of goes against his whole thing um, of, of uh, you know murdering everyone on earth. So, <laughs> right. so I don't think that's what he's doing. Um, as far as whether it's a, a – it's an interesting ending because they – this is a lot like the Ghostbusters don't cross the streams stuff where you get this yeah. immense warning from Jarrell like don't do this. There's no harm. <laughs> There's no consequence. Everybody's fine. He saves the day. <laughs> right. um, so I'm, I'm not sure. That feels like a little bit of an unfinished thought. But as far as a favorite moment, um, I love all the Krypton stuff. Because I think the 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 look of Krypton, how alien it is, you know, it's this like it almost seems like a frozen wasteland. It's hard to imagine what it's like to actually just live there. It's so different, um, which I love. Like the the Krypton you see in Man of Steel is much closer to the way Krypton is usually rendered in the comics. But I I just I like this better. Um, this crystalline, strange mm-hmm. world is really cool. They're glowing. Suits kind of reminds me of like a Tron a little bit the way they're they're just clothes light up. It's it's just you know you never see anything like this and it's so unique to to those two films and it's uh, that's really special. But as far as like a character moment, it's probably the the interview. Um, how old are you? Over twenty one. Oh, I get it. You don't want anyone to know how old. Okay. And how big are you? How tall are you? Uh, about six four. And uh, how much do you weigh? Mm, around two two twenty five. Two two twenty five. Hmm. <laughs> uh, well, um, uh, I assume then that the the rest of your bodily functions are normal. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Well, putting it delicately. Mm-hmm. Do you eat? Uh, yes. Uh, yes, I do. When I'm hungry. You do. Mm-hmm. I, I really mm. love that scene where Superman shows up at Lois's loft and she starts questioning him, you know, you know, how big are you? And he, for the second, like, oh, you put a dick joke in Superman. That's pretty neat. <laughs> right. You know, he says, okay. No, he's, I'm 6'4", about 225. And <laughs> right. Um, you know, he, it gets pretty coy about him using his x-ray vision to see her underwear. But amidst all of that stuff, there is this, the, these two characters feeling each other out. Yes. And, and uh, it, getting to know each other, there, there's this, they, they establish this kind of intimacy between them so quickly. And a lot of it is just, you know, super, again, this idea of like Superman wanting to you know let me do the things i can do i want to say the things i'm not supposed to say mm-hmm. because you know we, a lot of the struggles with writing for superman as everyone always talks about is you know what do you do with this guy who is you know basically invulnerable right you know you you look at 
what are his vulnerabilities? His vulnerabilities are usually, other than kryptonite, the the well being of the people around him, and his you know he he you can't you know punch him, you can't put a bullet through him, but his heart is very human and vulnerable. And like you said, that moment at the end, he lets out this like primal scream, yeah, which is like I'm the most powerful being in the universe, and I. I'm impotent to stop this problem. Now, of course, it turns out he did, he can solve it. Um, but you know, that, that is something that I think is a wellspring of, of great ideas for this character of, you know, what you, you can do a lot with him emotionally um, that, you know, like if you want to look at like, you know, where this goes and where it goes wrong, it's like, you know, there's so too many, all the Snyderverse shit about what if Superman was evil Right. What if he used his powers for, for evil instead of good? And it's like you don't want that from Superman. That's what Dr. Manhattan was for. Those kinds of mm-hmm. questions. Mm-hmm. Right. Go watch Watchmen and think about the abuse of power by superheroes. That's what right. that's what those stories are about. Um, but Christopher Reeve's Superman is I think that that's the character angle you gotta take on him. Yeah. A hundred percent. And you asked me about my favorite moment and I totally forgot. I love the entire helicopter sequence on top of the daily planet with Lois and then the public reveal of Superman in that moment. Um, that might be to this day, my favorite reveal moment for a superhero. In a movie. Easy miss. I've got you. you you've got me. Who's got you? <laughs> oh, I, I can't believe it. I just, I just cannot believe it. He got her. I just love how that was conceived. I loved how it was edited. And I love the fact that it's happening in front of a crowd. The peril feels real. We have Lois. It's well into the movie, as you said, well into the movie, probably about halfway through the movie when we really see Superman finally doing the Superman things. But um, he is saving someone we care about so much and we don't know what's going to happen. And I think I still have that lump in my throat because I think back, what did audiences think in 1978? They had never seen a sequence like this before. What was Superman going to do? What was it going to look like, you know, for Superman to take flight for the first time? And it's just such a you, – you can just sense the excitement and joy from the filmmakers around that sequence on that reveal of, of Superman. Yeah, so it is, it's a great me. moment. You get that fantastic line from Margot Kidder. You know, she says, I got you. And he says, you got me. Well, who's got you? Right. You know, it, it's so – it feels like at last Superman has arrived, right? And then they, they – Give you, it's like, okay, we know you've been kind of waiting for this, so we're going to give you this whole montage of him fighting crime, you know, mm-hmm. stopping muggers or, you know, the, this like jewel heist or whatever this guy's doing up a side of a building, that boat full of gang members <laughs> or whatever they are. It almost makes you wonder, like, gee, you know, if you were mugged the night before, you're probably wondering, like, where was this guy? But it's, it's still a great reveal. It reminds me a little, a little bit, to, again, to talk about other superhero movies. You look at um, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And you spend a lot of time with Peter Parker, but we don't really get him in the Spider-Man suit 
the the proper Spider-Man suit until pretty far into that movie, about the same amount of time, probably about an hour mm-hmm. or more before he, you know, we see him web slinging around like where he's supposed to. And there's a reason, like, we have that moment in that movie where he runs towards the camera and opens up the front of his shirt. It's literally the exact callback to this scene. But even then, this movie is not afraid to kind of get meta and and play with the tropes because they have that <laughs> great joke where he runs up to a phone booth to, where he's, he's going to change into Superman's outfit in the phone booth. And it's like, ha- it's just a phone. It's like half of, it's not a booth. <laughs> right. And he's like, and you can see in his mind go like, oh, shit. I can't, I can't do it here. <laughs> um, you know, they, they're willing to play with your your expectations as well. Yes. Yeah. Really amazing that they were able to walk that line. And, you know, talking about the making of the movie, what you're talking about, like veering into campiness, veering into sort of this sort of broad humor, Adam West style, that was the tone of the original script. So when when Donner was signed on, Richard Donner, you know, who who had done the omen at that point, you know, he went on to do Goonies, Lethal Weapon, you know, all the all these things. He's a great director. When he signed on to do it, the script he got was very long and it was full of just very campy humor. And that's why he brought in Tom Mankiewicz to completely do a rewrite because it was important for him. Uh, He talked about uh, verisimilitude. You know, it has to be going for reality, make it grounded, make it real. And so all that campiness he threw out. And they managed to find the exact right tone of how to approach Superman where he would exist in our reality, but there's still that lightness and that wink, that meta quality. Yeah. Now, there is one element of the movie we haven't really talked about yet, uh, but I think we need to spend a little time on, and that's John Williams. Because, like, in a career, like, you think about, like, a career that's basically all crown jewels you know nobody writes a heroic march like john williams and it's like you know indiana jones you know know, slam dunk star wars slam dunk like all of these movies jurassic park um over and over again but this one's pretty special i think even among all of john williams's work the the this theme it's like I feel bad for anyone trying to make a Superman movie now, whether it was, you know, Brian Singer or Zack Snyder, where it's like, you just can't top it. It's sort of like the Danny Elfman Batman theme. Like, it's mm. just, it's like this, this music is that character. And of course, the old story, I think, with the, I think the first time was it Richard Donner heard is you made the music say Superman. Like, it, you yeah, know, right. <laughs> you know, it, you can hear it, 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 you know, in a way, but like, it's, it's heroic, but also kind of like playful and, and sort of like you get that sensitive side to it. There's so much about this score that is just mind blowing in a career of, you know, like I said, legendary stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you'll find that I think you're exactly right. John Williams himself, I think, loves this and is very proud of it. He he plays it quite often still uh, when he conducts his music, uh, you know, um, he the Superman theme comes up again and again. And uh, yeah, I think he loves it. It's one of probably his favorite works. And it was such an amazing time. The uh, production designer for Superman, the movie also was production designer on star Wars. And then they got John Williams, you know, coming off of star Wars, you know, to do Superman, the movie. And just the timing of that is just absolutely incredible. John Williams, 
you know, regardless, I, I know people who are into music have different opinions of John Williams from a compositional standpoint, but no, to me, he is like probably the greatest movie composer of all time. And no, I don't think anyone can dispute that. He has come up with so many signature themes from so many beloved properties that he has a certain amount of magic. And you're right. He was able to bring that, what Richard Daughter said, that Superman, he was able to say it, but he was able to give Superman his musical identity. And I think he spoiled it for everyone coming after him. And so much so, right, that Brian Singer used it. I mean, he used it for Superman Returns, John Williams' theme. It wouldn't have felt right without it. You know, like it's it's such a part of the character. And you figure an audience that was going to see this movie in 1978, they might have had some familiarity with the George Reeves show. I mean, there was I don't remember what the theme to that is, but, you know, there, there was some musical identity for Superman. But this is so, um, so stellar that like you think of that long title sequence, which is just, you know, still one of my favorite title sequences in movies. And I'm just watching, you know, names come at me right. in neon on the screen. But I'm transfixed by it largely because it's buoyed by this like incredible piece of, of music and it just puts you in the right headspace and then especially that as it transitions like you know it does this entire like three minute or whatever like explosive march and then we get into that really cool music that introduces us to krypton that's sort of like regal and you know very it almost feels musically angular the same way krypton looks like it's it's really just mm. incredible stuff from him uh, again, like I said, even among all of his other film scores, I think this one stands pretty tall. Absolutely. And uh, I love everything about it. You're right, Doug. It's like there's so many wonderful pieces to that score. And one of the great things for us as fans is if you get, I think even on the DVD, but on the Blu-ray, they have the score only track. So if you want, you can watch the movie with only listening to the music. Uh, You don't have to listen to dialogue. You can watch the movie and just listen to the music. And I think that's wonderful. And they don't offer that all the time. Every once in a while, they'll do these things where they'll, you know, you can go see a, a movie and they'll have a live orchestra replace that. I think, I don't know if they've done it for this movie, but uh, that would be a treat, I think, to, to have a live orchestra playing this score because it's so exceptional all the way through. Yeah, I mean, the march itself is, you know, the the marquee part of it, but um, it's it's excellent throughout the entire the entire piece. So. Yes. Um so we're, we're coming up on time a little bit, but, um, you know, Ken, I'll ask you the question I always ask everybody, which is, you know, why do you think it is we're still enamored with this, this particular Superman movie? I mean, we've had other Superman stuff since it's not, it's, there's no dearth of Superman content, but 
But this particular movie, I think, still is the the benchmark in a lot of ways. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on why I think this is endured. I think it's endured because it has tapped into those same qualities that has made the character of Superman endure. And it's at the beginning of this, of this discussion, we talked about those values, um, those aspirational values, those virtues of truth, seeking truth of justice and as Superman says, the American way. But I think it's those things that appeal to us. We, we want to see that in someone. We would like someone to come along and lead us who has all of these great qualities who can, you know, as Jarrell said, you know, they just need a light to show the way, you know, um, we want to see that light and Superman is that light. And this movie understands that. And I think where other adaptations maybe slightly go off the rails is they don't, those adaptations don't understand these special core qualities that make the character Superman unique and also classic. And by this movie, Richard Donner's movie, tapping into those core qualities, that makes this movie a classic. And I think uh, people, if you know, they're able to look beyond the special effects, maybe not being up to modern standards, and look again at the writing and the characters and the performance and the ideas, um, it's a movie with heart. And I think it fills the hearts of viewers, uh, even generations later. Yeah, I I agree, and I kind of alluded to this before, but that that whole idea of you'll believe a man can fly, the reason you believe that he can fly is because of what Christopher Reeve brings to it. I believe he can fly. Yes, um, he and because he is this like, you know, he is a Boy Scout, but that is like you said, it's aspirational in a world where we're constantly struggling for you know an inspiration. He is what, you know, Jor-El says he, he should be, right? You can't manipulate human history, but you can lead them by example. And I think this is, again, it's the, the reason why, again, Chris Evans' Captain America works. He's probably my favorite character in the MCU because of this exact same quality, right? We meet him in that movie, uh, you know, basically, you know, trying his best to get while well, he's getting beat up by a bully, and he keeps getting back up and says, I can, what's his line? I can do this all day. Right. right. And it's exactly this template. You know, Christopher Reeve puts the heart and soul of this character first above all the special effects above, you know, all the, you know, shooting lasers out of his eyes and flying around. And, you know, I think some of that stuff even that we don't even see until Superman too. the, you know, the, the, um, the cold breath, all these other right. powers he has. Because the the superpower he ultimately has, it's not the the strength of his arms or his, you know, it's the strength of his heart. And that mm-hmm. sounds corny and, you know, it should be, except, you know, we, we, we sort of desperately need that. And Superman, the movie, gives us that in an, just a perfectly distilled way. Yeah, indeed. All right, uh, we should probably start bringing this to a close. But um, Ken, if uh, thanks again for for a wonderful discussion, um, tell the good folks here uh, where they can find your work. Absolutely, uh, anyone who's interested in seeing my stuff, uh, you can go to my YouTube channel, which is Ken Cole, and I have uh, pretty much all of my previous work uh, there, as well as my new work. I do lots of content 
uh, podcast, KenCast, you can watch live, and I, I record uh, discussions and interviews about all different uh, shows and topics, including Karate Kid and Cobra Kai. Um, and yeah, find me there, or you can find me on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Kenergy Cole. That's my handle. And uh, if you come by, say hi, drop me a comment, drop me a message. Uh, uh, love to see you. Cool. And uh, of course, if you want to drop us uh, any feedback, you can tweet it at Nostalgian Pod, or you can find us on Instagram. And uh, I encourage you to follow us there because I'm putting out bonus stuff there every week uh, to go with these each episode. So please follow us on Instagram. Uh, and of course, if you like the show, like, rate, uh, review it wherever you found it, tell a friend uh, and all that jazz. Um, if, so if you have thoughts on our recent episodes, which include uh, our last one was Homestar Runner, uh, before that, Adventures in Babysitting, uh, we've done uh, The Beatles recently, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Uh, and uh, I'm not 100% sure on what's coming up next. I do know that we are recording a, a Jurassic Park episode for the 30th anniversary of that movie. Um, there's a few episodes between now and then, so uh, scheduling permitting, I think we've got uh, Rocky is in the mix. Um, we're going to do, uh, we're talking about doing an episode on our favorite Disney songs. So um, good stuff to be had coming down the pike. I just had to figure out where it all fits in the schedule. So, uh, But uh, Ken, thanks again one more time for, for dropping by. This is great. Thank you, Doug. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. And uh, until next time, that is one more entry in the Nostalgia Market. Two. You have a reservation? Superman. I don't see anything. Might be under Man of Steel. Man of Steel. Man of Steel. Oh, yeah, Man of Steel. Right here. This way. Man of Steel. Why do you do that? Want us to buy the kitchen? No. No, you don't. I mean, how can they put this much mayonnaise on tuna fish and expect people to eat it? Why do you care? You're invulnerable to harm. It's not harm. It's too rich. Makes me queasy. Send it back. Ah. I've got a little... Hmm? Hmm. Napkin? Why? It's impervious to stain. Excuse me. Superman? Yes. I don't know if you remember me, Barry Katz. You saved my life once. I was hanging from a train trestle. Yeah, sure, sure. How are you? Oh, terrific. Great. I don't want to interrupt your meal. I just wanted to say thanks again. No, not a problem. It's good to see you again, Barry. He's the best. You're good, too. Thank you. Who was that? No idea. So you want to help me hook up this DVD? Well, I thought we were going cycling. Eh, cycling with you is no fun. Why not? It's just not. <laughs>